Jim is wearing his heels. Marching around the town to get some thrills. On this episode, I'm joined by an absolute legend, and you'll know why after you've listened to it. It's the powerful Richie Bartle. Richie, class up in the studio, mate. Ah, oh, Jim, thanks for inviting us down. Fellow Kovskin. Yeah. I said, do you, know, do you know what Kovskin is or not? I, until you said that the other day, no, I'd never heard that before. So the, is that the neck of the woods that you are from? Yeah, yeah. So Kenilworth is just down the road. Yeah, like yeah. a 10, 15 minute drive. So yeah, pretty close. The diehard Kovskins will be like that. Kenilworth, think. And I have this yeah, debate. Yeah, My missus is like Kenilworth. <laughs> yeah. Like she's from that area. She's not a Kovskin, albeit she says yeah, she's yeah. from Kov- like posh Coventry. Yeah, yeah. People be kicking off that you call me a Kovskin. Then, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, but hey, I tell you now, when they listen to your story, they will want to have you. If you're not a Kovskin, they'll adopt you. So <laughs> great, let's get great, great. Let, let's get into that. How do I find myself? How do you find yourself? being in a studio us talking where we don't really know each other but the listeners will be like who is this richie guy let's give a snapshot of kind of who you are and then we can dig into the weeds of it because we've had a a chat and i know a bit about your backstory and uh it's pretty fucking wild to say the least so let's go okay well yeah i uh yeah, obviously went to school in Kenilworth. After finishing school, decided I wanted to join the Marines. So at the age of 19, yeah, went into Marine training. Um, deployed to Afghanistan not too soon after that uh, as a machine gunner in a close combat troop. Absolutely loved that first tour. So whilst I was on that first tour, started the process for, you know, joining UK Special Forces and the SBS. One of my first selection, failed that, managed to get back on again and luckily passed the second selection. And yeah, joined the SBS, which is where I spent the last nine years in my career eventually left in 2020 for like a few reasons so from that first afghan tour so came back from that incredibly deaf um so yeah hearing was just shot out so eventually got medically discharged but had a family on the way my first daughter was being born uh, she was born new year's eve 2019 and then was you know been for years have been sort of talking about setting up a distillery in kenilworth um with a you know my best friend from school um so it's kind of just coming to a point where yeah needed to sort of step back to set that up and yes now run a distillery in kenilworth east chase distillers that's it east chase distillers east chase distillers yeah. yeah we'll definitely get on to that because the transition out of the military is a really interesting spot as well but you say that you're hearing shot out is that like as in like literally from like being... i didn't physically get shot in the ears <laughs> but <laughs> yeah no yes so yeah i went to afghan and obviously they gave me a machine gun but didn't give me the hearing protection mm. to sort of go with that so yeah, I mean, I think the first contact I was in, I put 900 rounds through the gun. So, yeah, that alone sort of does its damage. But, you know, you've got six months of that. And, yeah, you come back, lots of ringing and pretty deaf. Jeez, I can't even imagine the the path in which you've walked. And we were chatting when we were talking about it on the phone. I love the military. I've got history. My family, my dad was in the military for 27 years. He was in the Special Forces. I sit here with a hybrid accent, but we travelled. I was born just outside of Hereford, albeit I was registered in Swindon. So if you were to Wikipedia me, it says I was born in Swindon. I've got no... Why is that? Well, I do know the reason. Because I was born in 1982, which was the Falklands War. 
And because of the special forces thing, I don't think they wanted people registered either close oh, okay, or to then. be seen. Right. Uh, my sister was born in Northern Ireland. So I lived in Northern Ireland, lived in Germany, lived in Scotland. So I was right. kind of a big part of the military as a kid. Mum and dad divorced in 91, which was the Gulf War. And then I, not that it's about me, but I just want to set the scene. When I left school, I was in the cadets and stuff like that. And I was due to join the army. That was my dream was to do that. Um, mine, my mates that I was with, it's just so interesting how life goes. Like I went down to Aldershot to do the medical. I was in the best condition I could possibly be in, but I failed my medical there before I even laced up a boot. Oh, really? um, yeah, the height and weight ratio, I was classed as morbidly obese. <laughs> body percentage, mate. Really? Body fat percentage was probably 12%. That BMI thing's just ridiculous, isn't it? Fuck. I was going to say they lost a good soldier that day, but <laughs> yeah. the, the irony in this, Richie, to my really good mate, Bentley, morbidly obese himself, overweight, I could, 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 could barely do a press up or a chin up. Sorry, Bentley, I don't have a two hours to you. <laughs> he got in, ended up doing 12 years. I think it was 12 years in the Royal Logistics. Right, right. He ended up doing that. And I was devastated because that was all I wanted to do. It's all I wanted to be. Like he went in, two of my mates joined the Marines, 140 Commando, 142 Commando. 40 and 42. Yeah, yeah 40 yeah. and 42. Yeah, I was watching them go through training. I was watching them not only develop as soldiers but the fucking shift in them as men like as in what i find really interesting how old were you when you so i was 19 when i joined the marines yeah 19 years old yeah i mean it's it's certainly a culture shock when you first step into limston you go from you know your mum sort of folding your underwear and socks to you know suddenly you're in this environment where you've got some like and I'm, this is a literal example some like bald corporal screaming in your face that you know you're a piece of shit because you didn't polish the underside of your boot and you know it's uh so full on you just say oh, well maybe it's right you know maybe i am a piece of shit and yeah i'll make sure i polish the underside of my boots next time well that <laughs> was know? the big shift so my mates went away and i'm doing what i'm doing got an apprenticeship and ended up playing rugby but not at that point the shift of seeing them 18 and I remember I remember it vividly like they went away over Christmas and they came back and it was the hair was tight physically they were lean they were fit I'm getting goosebumps talking about it now because I just remember it so vividly like the shift in the lads that we mm. were with to being it was the marines specifically sorry Bentley the logistics not so much <laughs> but the lads who went in the marines the two 80s that I knew yeah were what you, a shift. I mean, you quickly have to grow up. There's, mm. uh, you know, there's no excuses. There's no, yeah, you just have to perform, basically, um, you know, from, from minute one, from as soon as you step into camp. Yeah, because you go down to Limpston, it's the, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just me going a bit of nostalgia and, and through the history of what I know, but it's 30 weeks, isn't it, for the Marines? 32 weeks, yeah, 32 yeah, weeks. 32 weeks, yeah. Kind of the, the last week's all like a drill week just prepping for your sort of pass out parade but yeah 32 weeks yeah with the final you know the final sort of tests being the commando test so with with the final test being the 30 miler across Dartmoor um you know off the back of having to do you know you've got a nine mile speed march you've got the Tarzan assault course which is a quick one you know that's like 15 minutes long as opposed to 30 miles but you know you're you feel like you know every cell in your body is just crying out for oxygen when you're because you're against the clock as well and mm. obviously riding the back of 30 weeks of you know the training that you go through you don't want to fail at that point so yeah you you certainly feel it but yeah it's definitely a good feeling when you finish that 30 miler um and you finally get given your green beret and what kind of shape are you in at that point because i, I, I are they trying to 
cut down the numbers that actually pass out. Again, this is just me going with what I've heard. Once you get to that point, you're almost there, or is that the final hurdle where it's like, no, hang on, this is the real difference now, yeah, the real decider? They're, they're def- they want as many people to get through as they can, but at the same time, you know, that, that line of what is pass and fail sort of never moves to allow more numbers through. So, you know, there are some guys that are like a minute over time or whatever, and, you know, it doesn't matter. That's that's you. Um, not going back to the start, but, you know, you'll, you'll redo it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty black and white, what is pass and what is fail. And at 19 years old, you get the Green Beret. Yeah. Um, and how does that feel when you oh, get the feels, Green Beret? Yeah, yeah. It's like you're passing that parade, right? Yeah. So, well, like when you finish the 30 mile, you cross over some bridge and you get, you know, you sort of get to the end of it. And because you're in different syndicates and some of the guys had passed already, but like uh, I remember one guy came and was like, oh, how do you feel? You know, I was just, you know, I couldn't talk at that point. It was just, you know, like, you're just like, fucking hell, I'm there. Like, we, we sort of done it. Like, uh, yeah. And all the corporals are your friends at this point, aren't they? So they go from shouting at you, raging at you, to yeah. you're one of them. Certainly, like, the first half of training, it's, it's a lot more, they're a lot harsher because at that point they are trying to, you know, weed out the those that are, you know, sort of the certainly weeds. not mentally capable. Yeah, yeah. I remember one guy quit and we are on bottom field. And as we were, you know, an hour into like a two-hour sort of bottom field session you know gasping for air and we're all stood in three ranks waiting to do something and he was walking down with all his kit and waving and one of the corporals was like don't you fucking look at him don't you fucking look at him he is weak you are not you know and you're just like oh okay <laughs> wow especially with how life is now life is soft at the minute and i, I would just watch how quickly that's accelerated when you're watching kids and you, you think back to the world wars right when kids are going to war mm. and your age even my age when my mates are going to the front line at the age of 20 to compared to what we're seeing now that's probably a story for another time but as a 19 year old lad you're passing out passing out as in not as in passing physically out <laughs> as in the passing out parade you get your green berry and then what's the difference between having done the 30 weeks of training and you're battle hardened and you're literally ready to go to war I think that would probably be a better question for kind of like friends and close family because you don't really see the change in yourself because you're kind of there, you're surrounded by people that are going through that same process um, and you're in that kind of environment. So, you know, I don't really recall feeling too much different. Does that make sense? Yeah, in, I, I, in, in I, you can respect, see that. Because you're kind of just on that train and everything's moving at the same pace because you're still on it. But I mean, of course, it goes without saying that, you know, there, there is a huge change in you, whether you see it or not, in your kind of like mindset and outlook on life it was good times i you know i loved it and you, you did love it so oh, yeah, yeah 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 you know it's something you know everything in the military i did you know if i could go back and do it again i would in a heartbeat you know I, it's still something i think about every day you know and i miss it but well it's kind of like one of those other one of those things i had other stuff i wanted to do in life you know set up the business and also with family on the way you know i didn't want to you know as, as much as i miss it I don't regret leaving mm. because if I had stayed in and no doubt I would still love it, but I'd be missing all the time with the family that I now have with the girls. You know, obviously, you know, certainly when you're in special forces, it's all consuming and, you know, you haven't got the time to obviously set up a business and, and do that. So yeah, I miss it massively, but don't regret leaving. Yeah. And this is what we were talking about on the phone when I spoke about my dad and he's kind of come up on a few different things and growing up without, a father, you know, I look at my wife, she's 
had the, the perfect upbringing, like mum and dad there, you know, as in fully balanced. And I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show, like I grew up in the in the military, always traveling, never had a, had a home. And that kind of carries through now, like I'm never settled, like I never feel settled. And then the other part to that is my dad not being there, like having a, a vacant father. And the fact that you referenced, you came out, you know, you had aspirations for the business and wanting to be there for your kid like I had real issues as a kid like real kind of anger issues the fact that my dad wasn't there you need your dad right you need like mm. a, a male figure in your life and it's only recently where the more kind of research that I've done like speaking to people like yourself you know, listen to Jason Fox and some of the stuff that he's done but I can only imagine to do your job properly at the highest level like you did like my dad had to do you can't be thinking well i've got two kids or i've, I've got a, a a kid at home like you are in a war zone like literally a mm. full-blown war zone and not that i'm making apologies for my dad he, he chose the other route to you he doubled down on sticking in with the military and, and the special forces life and everything but fuck he lost his kids for it. Do you know what I mean? And that's where your mindset's completely different. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it must be a huge sacrifice. Well, it is a huge sacrifice to, you know, to make, because you have to sacrifice something. It's either the, you know, career and job that you love, that you've devoted your whole life to, or your family. And it's, you know, it's a tough one. And like I said, there was a few things for me that sort of guided me out because, you know, I had the aspirations for the business as well and the family and my hearing was, you know, kind of at the point where I couldn't really continue anyway. But yeah, I know it's, it's, it's tough, you know, because I think when I was in, like I did a tour, so five months away, come back for four weeks, went straight out on another tour for five, six months, came back for, you know, four weeks. And then I was out in the States training for three months. And, you know, that was awesome at the time because it's all I wanted to do. And I was single. I didn't have that, didn't have anyone back at home that was relying on me and depending on me. So it was great. But yeah, to kind of do that with a family because, you know, you can't, when, when you're away, you have to be focused mm. on the job at hand and you can't have too many other thoughts. You know, it is all consuming. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you're 19 years old, you're now a Royal Marine. Where, when was your first posted and where was it? So I went to uh, 40 Commando and uh so i was there for about a year and because because when you turn up it's like no one speaks to you for the first like you know three to six months i was lucky i joined a i joined a troop it was quite a senior troop like all the guys on it had, had been on the afghan tour previous and thankfully i joined with uh, one other guy who's still a good mate now and yeah you just because you turn up at limston like day one of training just like a rabbit in the headlights 
and then you turn up at your unit just again like a rabbit in the headlights because you kind of got a bit of better idea of what's coming and yeah it's three six months all the shit jobs no one speaks to you and yeah you kind of just get on and eventually they start accepting you but yeah so it was a year at 40 and then deployed to afghan within about a year um straight to yeah helmand so that first tour was kind of split between Kajaki up in the mountains and then we're in Sangin um, for the, the second half of the tour. So from the age of 19 to 20, you know you're going to go to Afghan at some point. Is there talk oh, of yeah, so I mean, everything's building towards that? Oh, yeah, 100%. Everything was geared towards that. And, you know, it's part of the reasons why I joined the Marines because I know 100% I'm going to be deploying. Um, so it was a big sort of carrot on the stick for sort of getting through. Um and yeah, went on that tour and yeah, absolutely loved it. It was, uh, yeah, had a great time surrounded by, I say you're surrounded by great guys in your troop. You know? mm. People outside of that don't <laughs> like you too much. But <laughs> but with that, so like in that year in the lead up when you're having to earn your stripes amongst the company and the troop, these lads have been to war, right? So there's a brotherhood, like an undeniable bond that you aren't a part of, you've not had these experiences. No, exactly. Yeah. Did they talk about them experiencing? So before you went, did they say, look, young lad this is richie this is what the fuck's happening out there or like how were they they're quite blasé about it or no you're kind of just just how it is you just do as you're told so if like a senior well-respected lad is telling you to do something it's it's for a reason they don't really kind of sit you down and yeah go into any kind of specifics or anything um you just, uh, yeah, just, just do as you're told. And, and, and how do you train then? So uh, you, you go into Afghanistan. What was your role in, within the company? So I was uh, within the troop. I was a machine gunner. So, um, yeah, GPMG gunner. And my job was basically to, you know, carry the ammunition and, and fire it when, you know, when we'd be in contact. Um, the machine gunner has the majority of the firepower in the troop and you know everyone's you know everyone's carrying heavy heavy weights on their shoulders so what was it it's been about like 110 pounds i think i was carrying as a machine gunner but you know everyone's got weight uh, you've got the ecm so the electronic countermeasures so all these different bits of kit that go on people back that jam out different kind of radio frequencies for for the ieds because that was the main threat uh, as well as snipers IEDs was the main threat and because by the time I got there the tactics that we had to adopt it was basically the front two men in the patrol would be carrying what's called a Valen it's essentially just a metal detector and they would have a cover man so you'd be patrolling around at an absolute snail's pace like all day creating these like safe light safe lanes just looking for metal content any kind of metal content that was picked up was just marked and you'd avoid it and that was pretty much sort of how we patrolled around so when you come into contact you know you can't run for cover you just literally have to stand put fire back down and well pretty much most of the time it was just a case of get out of there because you know they never contact you in in a place that's advantageous for you it's always in you know you're always in the open and you got nothing nothing to do other than try and locate the enemy position which you never really do. You, you could. You're like, on that first tour, I didn't see the enemy once. You were lucky if you could kind of pick up the muzzle flashes or dust getting kicked up from the firing point. But for the majority of the time, the first thing you knew that the enemy was there was the rounds going over your head. And yeah, it'd just be a case of locate the fire position and put fire down and get out of there most of the time. Fuck. And again, chatting to my mates, that's exactly what they say. When I ask them, you, you ask them outright, you do it in a blase way. At the start, oh, what's it like going to Afghan? What's it like being in war? As in, in that kind of tone. 
and then you hear them talk about it in your tone like you've just done there like very matter of fact the thing that i found crazy was on the first time i chatted to my mate about it never saw anyone all he heard Mm. he said fireworks so like bonfire night for example the fireworks that it was the noise he said that i said like tell me like what was it like and he said that the noise of the fireworks going off on Mm. bonfire night is basically a great sounding board to actually what it was like and you never like you've just said like you never saw anyone no yeah well because when the when rounds go over your head obviously when you're firing that creates a sound but it's a completely different sound when a round goes over your head it the the round will like break the sound barrier as it goes it goes over your head it just creates this like horrible like cracking sound and obviously the closer the round to you the the louder the sound but yeah it's uh certainly gets the adrenaline going how close were some of the rounds oh, i mean there was one contact where i was about 50 meters away it was um just gone firm and it was in kajaki and there was a river that kind of curled round and went to our front and we sort of just looking you know looking at arcs with this area and you're kind of iding you, you know it's about to kick off at this point and so you're iding all the possible fire positions in front of you and then they were there for about 10 15 minutes and just this burst of machine gun fire comes out and see the rounds coming down the river and then over your head and that was a bizarre sound that's like i can't even describe that sound it wasn't quite like you know the normal sound of rounds going it almost sounded like lightning going over your head and then yeah a lot of the time you don't remember too much from certainly the initial part of the contact because you just you're just putting putting fire back down you're just completely reactionary and you know that survival instinct kicks in and because of all the training you've been through that's your survival instinct now to you know put fire down and you know next thing you know you've put 200 rounds down and you're changing the belt on the gun and that's kind of when you come back and the memories start to kick in is it like training or not i know it sounds like a ridiculous <sighs> question but like, how do you how do you train for something like that i mean you can't for you know the first time you're in a contact and you you, you know you really feel that fear and you really realize then that death is actually a thing so i think when you're young certainly as a as a bloke anyway you just kind of think yeah i can't die that's it's, it's fine you know and you hear those sounds and when when you see you know the rounds that close to you you certainly realize it's a it's a, it's actually a thing yeah i mean certainly with respect to all the skills and drills that you do because you know it is just day in day out certainly on the gun just you know constant drilling for that and so when it finally happens you don't even think about sort of what you're doing you're just it's done so in that sense it does but you know there's no way that you can prepare someone for i guess the feelings and the the emotions that you actually go through and kind of what's happening to you internally because mm -hmm. In training obviously they don't actually kill anyone to, mm. to show you what you know what combat's going to be like so yeah and i suppose everyone's different right you, yeah you might think you're ready you might think you want that but then when you're in that moment i imagine there's many lads who are like i don't want to be here as in they're scared and they're like i don't want to be here and i ain't coming back like it is that choice there and if like how are you like how are you in that environment when that initially happened because people listen to this they've never been in that environment like it's i imagine it's so hard to talk about and explain mm, no i mean like i said before i absolutely loved it whereas that all the guys i was with you know no one ever like faltered once you know everyone was perhaps maybe didn't love it so much but no one fell short of the mark at, at kind of any point on the tour of the blokes that i was with and it was kind of why i wanted to what made me sort of join the sbs because one night it was in Kajaki, 
up in the mountains you're on because you know you're patrolling uh, and then outside of patrols you're back in your patrol base and you're surrounded by the enemy so it's not like you can just throw your weapon down and just chill out for the rest of the day you've got sangers that need to be manned so the sentry positions and they would be like four hours so you do like a 10 12 hour patrol you'd come back for not long eat drink you might be on Sanger for four hours. Um, you know, sleep's always broken. And when you're up in the mountains, you're having to do food and water runs because the only way to resupply is is on foot. Um, so you never really get any time to yourself. But what was it? I must have, it must have been like two, three o'clock in the morning, looking over, you know, the mountain ranges in Kajaki, bored as anything, you know, trying to stay awake. I start to hear the sound of these helicopters coming in and you suddenly wake up a little bit and louder and louder suddenly they go straight over the head out out to the north i think it was and uh this is an area that we we sort of never went the rifles i think it was on the tour before had tried to push there they just mount like a met a god-awful ied belt came under contact and you know a few lads were, were killed and in that instance and so we never sort of could sort of push through that that line and anyway these, these helicopters just screaming and go past it Next thing you know, they land not too soon after that. Massive firefight kicks off, and suddenly you're awake at this point, wondering what's going on. And about an hour later, the, the fire dies down, helicopters come back in, and, and they leave. And you're kind of just like, who the hell were those guys? Anyway, the next morning, we're all sort of talking like, oh, was it, you know, was it Delta Force? Was it you know, the SEALs? Was it, was it the SAS? And then one of the lads in my troop was just like, no, 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 my, uh, my brother's in the SBS. And he was on that he was on that raid they you know basically you know these guys that are you know the snipers that are trying to blow our brains out and the guys that are leaving ieds for us and taliban whatnot it's like yeah basically the sbs just went in killed all the commanders and then just just left and i was just like oh okay and so i'm like doing the maths in my head I was like, oh, you know, it's simple, and I just have to join the SBS. <laughs> you <laughs> you know? want in on that? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The real action. And it was Not like, that you uh, weren't the real action. Well, but... yeah, it was just like the difference between that and patrolling around for sort of 10 to 12 hours, just waiting to walk into an ambush, which is pretty much all it was, like an IED or an ambush. I was like, well, yeah, that looks that looks kind of cool. So <laughs> that, was, that was kind of what spurred me on. And, yeah, from that moment on, it was just – not too dissimilar to the first time I saw the ads for the Royal Marines, like I saw them and that was all I wanted to do. And as soon as I saw that, it was like, that was then kind of all I wanted to do. Mm. Well, if you're in that environment, as in, in a war zone, watching that unfold, it goes back to the initial thing. Like some lads would be like, I'm happy to be here. I'm trained, but I don't want that. I don't, as cool as it might be to jump out of a helicopter, Commando style, SBS, Special Forces, Delta Force, Navy SEALs, that, that's not for me. But it's really interesting what you said, like when you were there, it just shows how good the training was because you, you said you felt ready, like as in you didn't feel underprepared. And that comes down to the quality of training. Like you know, people just don't turn up to the Marines or, you know, the mm. Army. You're ready, like as in fully prepared. Like that's what people who don't know much about the Marines, and I know a little bit about it, as in the training is that difficult because you have to be. Mm so difficult and i don't know whether it's changed it feels like it's changed a little bit now like it's softened like how you can speak to oh, individuals yeah. or maybe not has it i don't know i've heard stories but like there's always ways of getting around it well the, the the thing is the to keep in mind the final tests haven't changed you know as long as they don't change and that kind of remains you know what you have to do on the final kind of field exercises or low standards as long as they don't change because that that's the test like if you can pass that you're good enough 
in between if they want to change it because when i went through training people have been through sort of 10 15 20 years before were always saying to me oh you know you've got it easy now like it's it's a lot softer but you know the corporals always find ways of you know oh, of course you around like, they have to though don't yeah they? Like, yeah they have yeah because it was like you know you can't deprive the lads of sleep but what you can do is a kit pile so what they used to do, like if we'd messed up or sometimes even if we hadn't messed up, just, you know, for, for fun, it felt like. Um, but you'd have to get every single item of clothing. And because the way the accommodation was, it's like this spiral staircase that goes up and it'd be a kit pile. So and all your rooms are kind of around it. So one by one, you just have to get every item of your clothing, throw it down, throw water on it. And you do that. And, you know, this pile of clothing and kit would be up, you know, two stories high by the end of it. And then they'd kind of just be like at the end of it, well, now you need to basically wash all your kit. And we were hand washing our kit at this point. Wash all your kit, ready for inspection tomorrow. And it's like six o'clock in the evening. So you're like, right, you know, you're not getting sleep that night then. And then you're turning up the next day to your drill inspection or whatever. And you fail that miserably. And then you get smashed by the drill instructor and it just snowballs from there. Mm. So thankfully, not having to go through the whole process again. So I couldn't do a comparison. But like I said, as long as those final tests remain the same then still should be in good stead. You're on the front line in Afghanistan at 19, 20. All this is happening. How long are you in Afghanistan for, for that first well, that tour? That a six-month tour. Yeah, six, six months. Month. Yeah, yeah. Again, like I came back thinking, you know, I haven't changed, but, you know, speaking to sort of friends and family afterwards, they were just like, yeah, you were, you were definitely a lot more sort of wound up and, you know, certainly a bit more aggressive, I guess. Mm. Um I think just when you're in that kind of environment, you know, what do you expect? You know, if you're putting young lads in situations where, you know, they're literally having to fight for their lives, they're not going to come back home and immediately be able to, you know, perfectly reintegrate. Um, and, you know, not that I was getting in any trouble or anything, but yeah, you, you're definitely, you're definitely a bit different to what you were before you, before you left. It's crazy when you actually think about it and you, Outlay. I've mentioned the Hurt Locker before. I don't know if you've ever seen the Hurt Locker. I've seen the Hurt Locker. Is it like that? No, it's not like that. You know when you come back and you try and reintegrate. <laughs> oh, I don't know that specific that bit that you're referencing. But yeah, yeah I talk about that bit, like the reintegration okay. of, and maybe go through the system. So you like you go off to Afghanistan out of Bryce Norton. I'm just setting the scene here. Like you go, yeah, out, yeah, yeah. So you go out of there on one of these dusty. Hercules or whatever. I'm just setting the scene or whatever. So, I mean, I don't imagine you flying first class, are you? Into so Doha you know, and you actually across. fly out on more of a normal plane, and then you fly into what was it? I can't remember what country, but closer to Afghanistan, and then from there you'll get on the yeah the Hercules, and you'll you sort of fly fly into Bastion. We flew into on Bastion, that. Yeah, yeah, of course, and yeah, because that's suddenly it's like you know entering a different world when you're sort of. Yeah, rock up there. You know, the tail ramp goes down. It's just this like dusty airfield, just like there. everything you th kind of think and yeah, see. just like a hive of you know military sort of. Uh, you know, you got helicopters taking off, and yeah, you suddenly you realise the world you're in then. Mm. And then, so with that, then, so when you're coming out of Afghanistan, like how is that process of extraction? And then, do you go to Cyprus for a decompression? Yeah, I, again, yeah, I, yeah, I'm throwing out th things that I kind of know loosely, but. Mate, just talk us through how you go from being a young lad into a war zone and then out and then that integration back home. Yeah, the, was it? Yeah, decompression, they call it. You go to Cyprus. We had a couple of lectures. They give you two cans of beer 
and that's, that's your decompression done now. Mm. <laughs> and what and year is this around? Because I know two thousand and ten. This, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's not not that long ago. The way that you say it's almost like not a bitterness towards it, but like you feel like it's it's just not enough. It's not a. I wouldn't say it's bitterness, but it it felt like it's just a tick in a box exercise. Because that doesn't that, that doesn't decompress you or you know whatever you want to call it you know you're no better off reintegrating society with or without that um, and because by that point you just want to get home you don't really care about what some you know officer has to say on some slide that you know of how you should act and you know all the stuff that they kind of talk about you just kind of want to get do, home. What do they talk about then? Like how you should act? Like because they must yeah. know from history that. You're going back testosterone fueled, yeah, yeah, and like you know, ready to get out there in the mix, see your mates. But there'd be a number of different psychological things in the mix. Like if your tour has gone tragically wrong and you've lost friends mm. on the front line, they'll know all these things are in the mix. But they'll also know that you want to get back, right? You're a fucking young bloke, and you'll be thinking like what you do as young men. I don't need this bollocks. I'm yeah. fine. Well, that's exactly the feeling towards it. It's just like because you know it's bollocks. Mm. and you know you're not going to be any sort of better off for it it just felt like more of a tick in the box exercise so they could say they'd done something so you get home yeah 20 years old first thing you do after well, the you're, first just out, you're just out in the piss you know yeah. you've got you got a load of money saved up and yeah you're just pretty much out because you, you do get a good amount of leave i think it was like six to eight weeks or something so yeah pretty much everything you saved up just goes on the piss. <laughs> mm. And how are you when you get back to a bit of reality? Uh, you know, it, it, it does feel good. It does feel good to sort of be back in, uh, be back home and sort of doing all the things that, you know, you kind of used to do when your friends from school are doing. Because all my friends went to university. So, you know, I was just going out with them a lot. Are you yeah, sharing was, experiences? Like, are they asking you? Yeah, I mean, to, to an extent. But you never, you know, really sort of talk about things, not in any meaningful way and after that first tour like how was it was it a success you know was it an awful six month stint like when you go back and evaluate how that initial yeah, one i went? mean like i said i on a personal level i enjoyed it but whether you could call it well i guess with how how afghan fell i guess you can't call it a success well now, there you go but, i was going to um, come on to that later on you know we you know we went there and did what we needed to do so certainly from a you know troops perspective you know you, you do what you can at the time so yeah i mean we, we did the job well but whether we achieved anything is uh well let's get on to that because one thing and again this isn't me getting political this is me just being really realistic and having a military background and having lost a father to that world so I find it really interesting that as a young man, you choose to join the Marines, join the Army, the Special Forces. Do you know what you're fighting for? Do you have an idea in your mind? Is it Queen, King and Country? Like, what is the mindset of a young man joining the military? What was your mindset? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one at that age. Certainly now, the kind of way I look at, look at it is it's almost a matter of accountability. You know, if there's people or organizations out there that are going to be flying planes into civilian buildings and killing thousands or filling a truck full of explosives and detonating in a crowded marketplace full of, you know, just civilian men, women and children or, you know, cutting the head off an aid worker or a journalist, you know, I believe these people should be held to account. 
I think is irrelevant whether those people are separated by oceans or mountains or wherever. I think they should be held to account. That's not to say that, you know, the way that it was went about was necessarily the right way. Um, well, certainly from the perspective of Afghanistan, look what happened. So, you know, clearly the strategy for holding those people to account wasn't wasn't a great strategy because it, you know, absolutely fell apart. But with that, you know, I don't feel like, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you know, there's always going to be a winner and a loser. And, you know, you don't always get to win. Um, you just turn up and do your best. And that's kind of the way sort of certainly after Afghan fell, I sort of had to had to start looking at it. Mm. Yeah, well, nothing ends well either. I don't think that there isn't a fairy tale ending. No, to... no, not for, certainly not from the perspective of war. Exactly. Um, and so many things go into the mix as well, like the political landscape, the fact that there are so many countries involved, mm. the speed in which they ended the, well, the, the, they tried to extract everyone out of Afghanistan. That is a snapshot on our political world and life at the minute. It was a fucking shit show. Mm. Mm. Um, I've listened to a number of things. I've seen a number of things. I know people that have been involved in that process that... Uh, privately funded, going in on planes and doing all these things under the radar, going rogue to try and save civilian life, animals that mm, they, you know, mm. that they, they didn't even know. And again, we're going to go back and forth a little bit, but like as you sit here now, it's a really difficult question to ask. But I think it's a really relevant one when you're a young man who's now come out and been there and done it. Like, was it worth it? Like, do you sit here and feel like? you when you look at it now mm. i went there made a, a tangible difference because like without doubt you you've come out of it a, a significant and this is me not knowing you but it would have done a significantly different a better a stronger human being but from a war perspective and this will be the question going forward about people joining the military for king for queen for country to defend our land the old school analogy but you sat here now was all that worth it or is there a part of you that kind of second guesses some of it so one of my tours i was kind of just embedded with the afghan people i was like trying to training advising assisting an afghan team of about 40 50 blokes and you got to see a lot of the landscape around afghan you know what their you know quality of life was like and all that and, you know, they were, there was universities there where they were learning, you know, science, technology, engineering, maths, law, you know, the, the, they were kind of in a good place, certainly within, you know, the main city. And so when I went on that tour, because the first tour, you know, we were just in Sang and it was just like you're in an, an arena and our fighters are getting sent there, their fighters are getting sent there. It's early on you as well. Yeah. Well, 2010, so kind of like midway through mm. and you know, it just felt like, you know, we're here fighting, but you know, what's the, you know, what's the, for what, you know, and but kind of when I saw that, it, it kind of made a bit more sense because, you know, the war aside, you could see the positive impact of, you know, us being there and certainly speaking to a lot of, you know, the guys I was working with, you know, they were all, all for it. And then when you saw Afghan collapse, was you know really difficult to watch but something you know that that happened that i've never seen in any other war before 
was the local population flooding to the airport trying to get out as well. So, you know, they would rather leave with, you know, the occupiers. Well, than, they were throwing kids. They were throwing yeah, kids exactly, over the fucking you know, boundaries. And, you know, I think that's just testament to the, you know, we were making a positive difference. And it was, you know, they did want that. You know, you can't say that they didn't when, you know, you've got young lads falling from planes because they're trying to hold on to it as it leaves. And I guess, the, well, the question was, was it worth it? I don't really look at it that way. I said, you know, was what we're doing having a positive impact? And yes, is is my belief on that. And the fact that it was undone by decisions that were, you know, way, way, way outside, certainly anyone in the military's control is, well, that's just life, isn't it? Like, you know, decisions get made outside of your control. You just have to, you know, accept it and move on. Um, Them scenes were crazy. Actually, was, like yeah. just, just thinking back. And having had mates that have gone there and thinking, wonder how they are watching this unfold. You're right, people falling out of planes. Mm. I just remember the children just being like the mothers just throwing them over the fence. Oh, it's heartbreaking to see. Heartbreaking. Yeah. It's a really interesting take as well, mate. The fact that, you know, a lot of people would say, well, what, what was it all for? You know, it wasn't worth it. I, again, it was never going to end well. However, it ended. Mm. It wasn't going to end well, but your take on it, the fact that the infrastructures that were in place, I imagine people when you were there felt safe. Yeah. When you're, you know, you're walking around just so they can get on with their life, just some normality. Yeah. And because, you know, driving around like you, you know, you saw women just walking around on their own, you know, where they they had the choice, you know, but you, you saw women walking around just with makeup on normally, um, which is, you know, that was that was the first time I ever saw a woman in Afghan that wasn't completely covered up. And even then you hardly ever saw them. But, you know, I know that's kind of like our way of life and you shouldn't you know, enforce your sort of, but, you know, they had the choice at least. Um, and, you know, girls were going to school, women were going to school, even the boys were going to school and they're all getting an education that was, you know, a, an education that would, you know, eventually build Afghan up and, but yeah, what can you do? Yeah. What can you do when the decisions, like you said, have got mm. nothing to do with actually the, the people that are there in the arena uh, and on the front line. Uh, shocking. So you come back, You've been on your first tour. You've referenced the the SBS there. How fucking cool is the SES and the SBS? Like it is, like as in, the, I know it's been sensationalised to some people. Probably don't like that, but with the Who Dares Win show and stuff like mm. that. But I've always been interested. I mentioned the reasons why. How does that come about then? So you get the 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 appetite and the opportunity, I suppose. Like how how does one work through that process? Well, let's say it's a case of volunteering for it. You'll go on pre-selection courses, and when you're successful on those, you'll be loaded onto actual selection, which is six months long. And it's a case of where well, you have to do all the training yourself. There's there's no one building you up to that. There's you know, a few more pre-courses that help you on your way, but essentially it's on you to get to the fitness standards required. And you know, luckily in the Marines, you've done a lot of it already. And so it's just a case of getting out, getting on the hills with weight on your back and, you know, working your way up to the, the distances and weights you need to be, you need to be doing. What kind of level of fitness? Because like people might be watching this. I know you're out now, but in incredibly great shape. You look at ones that have come out and they're on TV now, amazing shape. I've got a couple of mates as well who've been in and having been around athletes and people that are in good shape. You're talking of the elite of the elite, the fit of the fit, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the so the hills, that phase is 
the the fitness is you know pretty hard going it's we're three weeks long and you're pretty much doing a march every day and we call it a march it's not really a march it's you, you're running sort of the flats and downhills to make up the time because it's all against the clock and so you're covering anywhere between 22k up to the final one being 64 kilometers long with progressively heavier weights on your back from 60 pounds up to about 90 pounds on the final one and that's kind of like day after day um certainly the test week is the most testing part of it and that's all you can fail one march uh but you fail another and then that's you you off and when i say fail you still need to complete it but if you're over time um with yeah the final one you do you do a march on the whatever day it is you have a bit of time off and then at 12 o'clock that night you start the 64k march which takes you've got no longer than 20 hours to sort of complete it and yeah it was bizarre almost surreal by the end of it you know you march through all darkness back into the day all through day and then into sort of night again and yeah you're pretty you certainly you feel it and yeah yeah ankles knees back um and shoulders by the end of it you're in a pretty pretty bad way physically but yeah once it's done it's done you you hope so that's the final part of the training is no that's the first part of the training that's the first part yeah, of the training so that's like as in to say like right i'm here i can do this hard bit and then it yeah well because really at this point it's basically just been fitness and navigation there hasn't been any strictly speaking soldiering skills done and they say at that point you're just a number to you know all the instructors i think we started off with like you know 220 230 and more than half had gone by by that first three weeks and the majority of which being sort of paras and marines so already pretty fit guys and you know the the dropout rates astronomical and why is that is well, it a they mental do. physical bit of both injury both. a bit it's of both. everything you get um yeah people just not making the times you get people just mentally just saying like nah there's anything for me it's funny sometimes because you'll be on a march and people just be like yeah yeah i had enough stuff that's uh that's me about like, right okay then hand your hand your badge in and I sort of just look at them about we'll put your kit back on you still need to like finish it so even though they quit they still have to complete the march with everyone else and yeah they yeah imagine feel a bit silly when they get to the end of it and realize they could have got to the end of it and yeah had to do it anyway but yeah that's them off is that is it so at that point it's every man for themselves so you you were just there for you solely it's not a collective thing like no so like initially there's some you do it as a collective but it gradually breaks down and by the last week it's you on your own and you know navigating alone through you know predominantly the brecon beacons and you know the weather always comes in at some point and it's really bad and cloudy so you wouldn't be able to see 20 meters in front of you you're just going off your compass bearing um just hoping that yeah your, your navigational skills are on par i've been at the penny fan a few times not yeah, like it's, you it's enjoyable isn't it yeah, well well it's enjoyable when like i've been back there after selection i was like actually i could, I could see why people enjoy doing this because on selection you see like walkers out and about you just think these people are crazy what the hell are they doing here but kind of when you take it in your own time and the weather's good it's yeah it's not too bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> if only so you get through that initial part whittle down and then that's when the training really starts just give us a kind of outline how you go from doing that initial bit then to going all the way through to they call it what do they call it at the end so this is selection this now is selection this now. is selection yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, from that they say. They, well, they say the hills is just the ticket to the jungle, and then the jungles <laughs> where you know selection really starts, because um, that's where you're really being looked at for your ability to soldier. 
Um, so all the sort of tactics and procedures that you have to do in the jungle, it'll get taught to you once and you'll be expected to, you know, just immediately apply that in, you know, a really harsh and unforgiving environment. And because it's 28 days straight under canopy in the jungle. So whereas before you do the march of the day and then time would be your own, it's just 28 days of just nonstop. You know, the heat is absolutely Yeah, exhausting. whereabouts are actually in a jungle? In the jungle, okay, yeah. Okay, so yeah, it doesn't yeah. know whether that was like a term that you did it in Wales or Scotland. Oh, or no, no, it's, it's, in, in, the it's in the jungle. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the, you know, 80 to 100% humidity constantly. As soon as you step off the helicopter, you're dripping with sweat. If it's not raining, you, you just piss wet through the whole month, basically, um, with either your own sweat or or the rain and yeah you're you're really being looked at closely by the the instructors then and they see everything you do um and uh but you know because before like on the hills you're doing 22 to 36k a day in the jungle you'd be lucky if you're doing three to 4k in a day it's just absolutely exhausting you know i'd rather take you know 22k up in the bracken beacons any day over you know sort of a march through the jungle it's just you know physically it's just absolutely exhausting the hardest part is there's you, you don't get any feedback from the instructors on how you're doing oh, so it really starts to play and that's a a big reason why lads fail because they quit because they think they're they're failing you know like you might fuck up you might even not fuck up you might just think you're in your own up mind and yeah you've just got like in the trees somewhere an instructor looking at you write something in his notebook and then he'll put it away and just walk off so you know the mate the psychology yeah part and it's fucking wild when you say it like yeah because so many guys just quit and then they speak to the instructors afterwards and they're like oh so why do you quit and they're just like well i knew i failed anyway and they're like you're actually top third of the course you know you're doing really well but you know that's part of what they're looking for they're well, looking that's for human psychology everyone needs that reaffirmation yeah. don't they especially yeah. in an environment like that unless you're in the special forces where you can't have that well exactly yeah yeah and that's kind of the point mm. you know you could be you could be an excellent soldier and you could be super fit but if you're going to doubt yourself like that and just come undone you can't go on operations like that you know, you need people that just, you know, whatever situation you're in just to keep going. Um, so yeah, that's another big sort of failure rate. Cause, and yeah, physically like by the end, my, cause like you're wet constantly and you know, your feet are just constantly wet. And you know, in the, when you're in the bath too long, your fingers go all wrinkly and that's kind of like what happened to the bottom of my feet. And they got this like fungal infection, these, these little bits just eating into the sort of dead skin and by the last week it's just walking anywhere it just felt like i was walking on fire and you know it was real painful and you're just hoping because the next stage to that is the you know when you're running around the skin actually slides off from the bottom of your feet so yeah thankfully that didn't happen because that would be me off course but well yeah, that's what they say like with that again i heard i overheard my dad when i was a young kid talking about selection and they were talking about the jungle and they were saying that, like, the only thing to take a man off the front line or off selection, as in if he is a hardened man and the very best, is blisters. And he said, or a foot infection. He said, you get that, you folks. Oh, no yeah, matter yeah. how hard, how good you are, yeah. he said, you've got to look after your feet. Oh, 100%. And, yeah, because at night, you know, you sort of powder and try and dry your feet off. But when it's, like, day after day, like, it just, yeah. You're in boots as well. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> My feet just, yeah, a bit weak, um, but thankfully not too weak to, to come off a course. So, yeah, you kind of, you get through that stage and because you leave the jungle and you don't actually get told who's passed or failed at that point. So you all get to the end and you don't actually get told until you get back to, 
you get back to camp. So you got like a couple of days of kind of just like, you know, did I, didn't I? You have kind of an idea of how you're done, but it's still nerve-wracking when you're in that auditorium at the end and they just read out a bunch of names and you're just there, your fingers crossed, like you don't want to be on the list basically. And thankfully the list started at C, missed out B. So oh, thank God for that. Yeah. yeah, about like eight guys just, so just they, walk off. So they so fail. So they yeah, fail before they, just, they tell you. Yeah, and so, then, yeah. So let's just go back a little bit then. So you do the the jungle warfare. Can we call it that, or is jungle yeah, selection? Sure, yeah, warfare makes, sounds good as well. Yeah. <laughs> Very American. Yeah. You know, like the, the old things you see around interrogation and the waterboarding and all these things. I don't know how much you can share. You can just say, look, mm. you know, you don't don't want to share any of that information. But is that still a part of it? I know they used to do that back in the eighties, nineties. Was... Because that's the next phase. So when you okay. finish the jungle, and you pass that, then you kind of go on to. I thought that we were phase done. I, mean, I no, thought we no. were done. Sorry, no, to keep going. At this then. point, you're about. You're not at the halfway point yet. So yeah, that's the next phase, and it's. So you're yeah, in, is, it, is this in the jungle? So you pass the jungle. Back home now, okay. back in the UK. Any and, time um, off? No, so the whole six months you don't get any time off. Um, it's yeah, it's. I mean, you get sort of the odd sort of bits of weekend or weekend, but generally speaking, it's six months on on selection, pretty much. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd say the that phase of it, the you know survival interrogation phase, is by far the the least most unenjoyable part of selection. It's because you know with the hills, there's you know you get a bit of time to yourself and you complete a march, you feel kind of good. You know, it's been a hard fist session, so all the endorphins are in. So you kind it's of it's physical. Yeah, it's physical and you feel good. Even in the jungle, as horrendous as it is, you know, you're still doing a lot of soldiering and you know, if you like soldiering, which I did, there's there are bits to enjoy. The survival phase is just absolutely miserable. Um, you know, you're up in Scotland, it's winter wearing just military uniform you've got no real warm kit and like a day's half a day's ration to sustain you over you know the distance that you need to travel over five or six days i think you're on the run um yeah up in scotland it's pouring down with rain like i remember one night we eventually just had to stop because we we're just you know absolutely exhausted freezing cold just lying on this forest floor and me and one of my mates just spooning each other trying to trying to maintain a bit of body heat on the you know all the roots on the ground and you don't really sleep um you know turning over every 20 minutes to you know warm your back up a bit more <laughs> you just look pathetic you know you're just absolutely broken and then you do that bit and you're getting hunted down by hunted down by sort of hunter force you know dogs they're generally like paras and marines looking for you and you definitely don't want to get captured we didn't but that sounds incredibly unenjoyable and well you eventually get to the end and everyone gets captured anyway and then you go into yeah 36 hours of interrogation which again you get into that and you're kind of just wishing you're on the run again by by that point because that's you know that's and it's like the the program SAS who dares wins kind of you know it does give a good idea albeit on a much smaller scale of what it's like you're in the stress position room with the white noise being played and and for us it was like what was the white noise it was like these three violins all out of key all out of time um, but then played backwards on a 15 second loop or 10 15 second loop and just constantly and you know you're in that room for you know upwards of five hours sometimes Jesus. just in stress positions and you, you, you kind of start to lose track of reality because 
you, you don't really know when you're awake and when you're asleep kind of thing. Like one time I thought I was somewhere else just having a dream and then kind of just woke up. I just passed out on the floor and one of the guards was sort of just picking me up and putting me back into place, you know, back into the stress positions. And Isn't that a good place to be though? Because of otherwise you're out. Because oh, yeah, if, if you're yeah. lucid, you're tapping out, right? But if you're in that in that kind of space of, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say it was a good place to be. But <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't miss it. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, like, certainly by that point, yeah, yeah, you definitely don't want to fail. And then another time, they started cooking bacon, and because you're starving at this point, you you know you're so hungry, they start cooking bacon and the smell coming in because you can't see a thing. You know you've got the some bag over your head and then you've got goggles over the front or is it just the goggles it's, you can't see a thing they've got tape all around the goggles so there's literally no light coming in so you have no real concept of even where you are and yeah they started cooking bacon and the smell was getting stronger and stronger and you're getting hungrier and hungrier and you start to hear the noise of people like chatting away and laughing and stuff and the noise was just getting louder and louder i think oh maybe Maybe this is just part of the exercise where they give us bacon sandwiches and they've forgotten about me, you know, and, you know, this the sound of laughing was just getting louder and louder to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. So rip the goggles off and kind of like, as soon as that happened, all this, like the sound of the chatting sort of went away and it's just back into the room, the, these violins playing and then just looked around. It's just like cold concrete floor with everyone spaced in boiler suits, you know, perfectly sort of two meters apart from each other in the stress positions. And, you know, there's no bacon anywhere. Sort of just looked around and, you know, someone just came back and put the hood back on. And I was like, well, you know, as long as no one else is getting bacon sandwiches. <laughs> and then, yeah, you kind of get to the end of that and eventually it comes to an end. And How long is this process? This That's about a week in total, I think. I can't remember the exact time, but yeah, you're pretty, you're in a daze by the end of that. Um, but kind of at that point, you ain't quitting. Like there's absolutely no way you're quitting with everything you've already gone through. Yeah, and yeah, it ends and yeah, you go into the, and that's kind of the, that first kind of half of the course is where, you know, the majority of people drop out. After that, it does go into more of a, more training. Like and conditioning, and, and I suppose. Of, yeah, you do, yeah, all the other things. And yeah, after six months, you know, the majority of people are then successful and then you go off to, to your to your squadrons and your respective units. So on that interrogation in Scotland, is that where it happens after... Is that the last bit? Is that the the, the last for that stop for that like what for point? that phase? Yeah, for that yeah. phase. So you yeah. finish that phase. So we're not finished yet. No, no, no. no there's no. still about another three months of just okay. various other things that you'll get taught. Um, yeah. So before you you get told you're in the SBS or SS, you've still got the training to go through. So there's still yeah, a long yeah. part. Let's keep going. And then, well, yeah, you sort of you get to the end of that, and then you've got continuation training, kind of after that as well so i mean selection is kind of what it kind of says on the tin it is selecting the individual it doesn't you know you're not even at the end of selection you're not fully ready to reintegrate with a squadron or integrate with a with a squadron so you go into kind of continuation training you do stuff with vehicles with with boats um you know obviously being in the sbs you have to do some boaty stuff mm -hmm. um so yeah the, the boat course is one of the things you do and you know that's you think at the end of selection you're like oh that's all the hard work done now and yeah it's not you get you get that boat course is tough as well when you're you know you're paddling with the clepper canoes um you're in sort of two-man teams um 
I was paired up with a guy in the Marines. He was about 10, 12 years in, so it was great because, you know, I had a lot of experience and, you know, real nice guy. You know, we'd be doing some of these paddles sometimes, however long they were. You'd be hanging out, it'd be freezing, you know, your hands would just be, you know, again, just piss went through, hands cold, and suddenly I'd be at the front and some of the power behind was waiting. I'd turn around and I was phone to his fiance. It's just like message. Oh yeah, out paddling. Still shit. Uh, yeah, whatever he was saying. I don't know. <laughs> like, Oi, get back, get back in you. And then, um, but yeah, kind of at the at the end of the boat course. Well, towards the end, um, we're doing some some surf drills. Um, is what they call it. It's on the medium inflatable boats. Um, so like eight man boats. You know the inflatable ones. They got two engines on the back and just practicing for you know going in and out of shore sort of in in rough seas and the sea state was you know it was pretty rough it was on limits um to what you know you can safely do in training but it was on the limit so they decided to train and yeah we're going out and yeah it was like real tough going to get out because you know these boats fully laden which they were it's like it's a tough 12-man lift you know and you're just getting chucked about by the waves like and whereabouts are you in the world this oh this is in the uk now oh, this, is yeah, the UK. this is in the uk um, but the seas are still rough oh yeah well today it was anyway well, that day it was anyway and yeah so the you know the waves were coming in and trying to get out and so the coxswain who was in charge of the boat was really having to put the revs on to get over these waves and as we're going up it was almost the boat was almost going vertically up kind of like that and sort of fall back down on the tail end and slam back down and you know, it was, it was exciting, but, you know, you're still, you're still, I remember feeling like pretty scared at the time because, you know, you'd never done anything like that before and it was all new. And, but as the boat was going up, it was, the tail end was going back into the water and it was slowly drowning the engines out. So eventually one engine sort of cut out and, and that was gone and, you know, managed to get over the next wave. And then the second engine drowned out and, you know, at that point you're fucked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I saw another wave coming and the boat goes broadside onto it. So it's just, well, you know what's coming at that point and, you know, you call a brace, brace, brace. And yeah, this wave just flipped us like it was a box of matches and you all get flung out and come back up, swim back to the boat, start numbering off. You know, one okay, two okay, three okay, four okay, five okay. And sort of looking around because there's six of us on the boat and looking around, see some at the tail end where the engines are, start see some splashing and sort of get over to it. And it's my, my clapper partner, Woody, and he's somehow, when the boat got flipped, he's got like caught up between the engines and sort of get over to him and you know, put my hands under to try and break him free. And one of his arms, his arms grab mine and I'm sort of grabbing his, kind of, you know, like this. Mm. And like I tell by the way he's like grabbing me, it's, you know, it's serious. And so trying to pull him out, trying to pull him out. And, you know, eventually his, his grip just fades away and, you know, his body goes limp. And, you know, that's the point, like I knew it was serious and yeah, you're kind of against the clock. So you're trying everything to sort of like dunking under, trying to see if you can feel what's snagging him. And the waves are still crashing on our heads, you know, whilst doing this. And one wave eventually came in and for whatever reason, somehow unsnagged him and he sort of comes up and his face is blue and there's white foam sort of spewing out his, his nose and mouth. And, and I quickly pulled his life jacket because he just started to sink and kind of just like right well you know we need to get some get some oxygen in him and so we pulled him around and managed to pull him up on the boat the upturned boat 
as I got on, you know, just sort of looked up and another massive wave was coming and just, you know, threw us off again. And by that point, we sort of just realized we had to get him back to shore. And yeah, there was three of us that, you know, dra dragged him back. And you know, it was about five or six minutes before we kind of managed to get him back to shore. And, you know, you know, you never lose that hope, but kind of deep down, you know, what's, you know, what the outcome's going to be. And, you know, I didn't really know what else to do. I just held his hand and told him it would be okay. But yeah, we eventually got him back. Another team sort of took him away to start giving him first aid and our ambulance eventually came in and took him away. And yeah, we were told sort of not too soon after that, that he, he drowned. Um, Holy shit. And yeah. What can you do? <laughs> Fucking hell. And yeah, it was kind of like the next day was all the police inquiries and stuff. And then it was just back to work. Um, obviously, we had his funeral, which was which was tough. Um, certainly tough on the family. You know, we had his his mom, his dad, his fiancee and brother, and then all the close friends. And of course, they all want to know and they have a right to know kind of what happened. Um, so you tell them, but... Yeah, certainly wasn't. I'm sorry, I, I I don't know what to say. I mean, it's tough, you know. It's but and it's, this in training, right? Well, yeah, and that's it's it's kind of just the nature of the beast, you know. If you want to be part of a team like that, that's going away to do, you can't train in perfect conditions because chances are the operations aren't going to be in perfect conditions. Um, and you know, throughout my career, I think certainly the time I was in, there was more more injuries and 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 deaths in, in training than there was on, on operations. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of pill to swallow, don't get me wrong, but it, it, it kind of has to be that way. Because of the job. Yeah. Yeah. That is needed. It's yeah, not exactly. Yeah, you've got to go. And, and this comes down to, again, I don't even know how I, I carry on talking about what I've heard or what I've seen, but the best of the best are the SES and the SBS. And from what I've seen or heard, it's because the training in which they do puts yourself in that position that it's seamless when you get it as seamless as it can be when mm -hmm. you get into a war zone. Well, I mean, yeah, as soon as you let's say no plan survives first contact, you know, as soon as you get on the ground, it's, you know, nothing like you expected, like rarely ever. And, you know, there's always, there's so many factors outside of your control that you've, you know, you can't plan for. And, you know, to an extent, a lot of it's the unknown um, and you just kind of have to deal with it. How do you carry on after after that into training? Did, did you carry on? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's no time to stop. Um, you know, the cycle's relentless. Um, I said there was, I mean, there was no time off. It's straight back to it. And how are you mentally at this point? I think suddenly it, it affected me, you know, quite drastically years down the line. But I think at the time you're just so numb to it and you just, you just carry on. And, you know, for... You know, initially things are kind of fine. Um, it's not until, you know, the years, because I kind of basically just dealt with it by not dealing with it and just, you know, putting it to the back of your mind and saying everything's okay and, and carrying on, which, you know, in hindsight wasn't the best thing to do because, you know, emotionally traumatic experiences like that affect everyone in some way. But yeah, yeah, at the time you just, you just carry on. Mm. And how far into training at this point is it? Is it the halfway point? No. Are so you... this is you've passed selection, so you're part of the SBS and you're on the continuation training. Okay. So Yeah, pretty not soon after that, sort of joined the squadron, and yeah, within not too soon after that, I was back out in back in Afghan again on the mm. uh, first tour with the with the SBS. As in where you wanted to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. So 
yeah, from, yeah, that snippet of life into the SBS from what I saw in, mm. in Kajaki. And yeah, suddenly you're, you're there. Was it everything you hoped it was? Because again, I'm going to reiterate the point. It's, and you've outlined it there with the training and the experiences that you had. Like, you are the best of the best now. Did it feel like that? I mean, how old are you, how, how old are you at this point? 24, 25 Fucking by the time I... 24, oh, 25. No. Oh, so yeah, but like I, I passed at 23. And then by the time I was in Afghan again, it was 24, 25, yeah. And yeah, you know, it was... Well, I mean, the, the, the first operation that I went on with, uh, with the SBS, we flew into somewhere, you know, I can't even remember the name where. It was like, yeah, you know, a Taliban stronghold and it was like a 14K walk in and we're in this valley and there was movement in the, in the mountains, um, you know, armed men moving to machine gun positions. So, so airstrikes kind of went in and you're sort of like advancing towards it with the whole valley kind of reverberating of this sound of the, you know, the bombs going in and we get to about 300 meters short and a couple of teams go off to sort of sort them out. And I'm waiting back with the main body of it and the amount of airstrikes that have gone in, you feel pretty content that yeah no one could survive that anyway so you see i could see just about through my nvgs because you're at night now so everything you see is through this like little green smarty tube um and you see the guys going up and yeah they obviously got to the location and just yeah the whole night just lit up with machine gun fire from the enemy position and you know the red tracers sort of ricocheting off the rocks and and everything and then rpgs started coming out um so rockets and as always happens when the shit hits the fan like other stuff goes wrong so all our radios went down so we got no communications at this point with the sort of teams that are dislocated from the main body and eventually sort of broken radio transmissions start coming back and it's taken casualties and you know such and such has has been hit and kind of at that point you know i just got told to grab a medic and sort of just get forward so you're charging across the open ground trying to you know make as best speed as you can and the fields they were so muddy so you you know it's tough going underfoot eventually sort of get to the the base of this mountain and one of the guys um, who was my friend from the Marines before, we both sort of decided to go on selection together. So we did all the sort of training. He passed the first selection course and myself, the one after that. And that was why I chose to join that squadron because he was the only one I knew. And so, yeah, I wanted to be with him. And he'd been shot, I think, seven or eight times in the in the legs. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, by that point, one of the medics had patched him up um and he was just pumped full of ketamine so because the painkiller that mm. we used not because he took a party bag out with him but uh <laughs> and yeah he didn't know where he was he was uh laughing and joking and you know, calm down you're still firing up top obviously yeah couldn't spend too much time to comfort him because there was another guy that was still up the mountain and the machine gun fire still coming out and we still don't really know what's going on get to the base and one of the guys there who's talking up to the planes and coordinating all the airstrikes basically is just saying we're waiting we're about to about to advance up we're just waiting for the ac-130 gunship to come into orbit and fire us in because the steepness of the the gradient of the mountain was too much for for us to put 
fire up. We couldn't provide our own covering fire, so we're waiting for the AC-130 gunship, which is basically just a big plane with a bunch of big guns poking out the side. It just circles around and fires in. So I'm waiting for that to get into orbit, and I kind of naively say to the guy, oh, well, you know, how do we, how do we know when to advance? And he kind of just smiled. He's like, oh, I know you, you're going to know. So you're there, just waiting, taking a knee, looking up, and you know, by this point, the, the seconds feel like an eternity. Waiting for it to come in, and then suddenly, it's just like the whole mountain just erupts as the gunship opens up, and the whole night just turned red. Because when the rounds were striking the mountains, they're exploding, and it was like the red that a firework produces—that same kind of red—and completely whited out the NVGs. The point just flipped them up because it was like it was like daylight anyway, with the uh, the light that it was producing. Of course, so we started advancing up, and you know this mountain was like something I'd never seen before. The the boulders were like pebbles the size of cars and small buildings. So climbing up was, you know, real difficult and, you know, your weapons clattering about everywhere as, because as soon as that started firing, there wasn't too much coming back up. So you kind of put the trust in the gunship to, to you know, put the fire in and you're just focusing on getting up there and getting to your buddy. It was already a danger close fire mission and, you know, we're sort of getting closer and closer the point you're sort of about 10 15 meters away and you kind of know it's it's going wrong because there was no fire going back at no point did i see any fire sort of returned and sort of get you know 10 15 meters away to the point you can see the splash of these rounds coming in from like 5k away so you know an outstanding job it was like an american crew god knows how they done that because you know to be 10 15 meters away from you know these you know large caliber rounds coming in and for them to keep it there and not drop short and hit you was you know i still don't even know how they'd done that eventually got to a point and saw saw the guy we we're going up to get and he was kind of just looking up at the sky with just this, you know the bizarrest look on his face that, that he ever seen and that's of course i realized he he was dead uh we were just going up to drag his body back down basically which you know you know goes without saying that we, you know we did um because you know the other guy had been lucky like god knows how you get shot eight times and and survive but unfortunately you know in this instance one of the rounds that that hit him went through his femoral artery and he bled out before anyone could get to him so it was then yeah just you know three of us dragging his body back down as as best we could and because you know it was it was exhausting just getting up there in the first place and you know, then going back down was just, you know, trying to keep hold of his body, like down these rocks, you know, we dropped him so many times. And at one point, sort of halfway down, we were just, you know, sat there around this rock with him just lying there, just, you know, gasping for air. Because, um, you know, when you're in situations like that, you think you give it your all, you know, in the gym and on selection, but in situations like that, you know, it unlocks a little bit more in you. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's just physically painful, you know, and, yeah, eventually got him to the bottom and, you know, got him to the extraction point uh, about 300 meters away. And then, yeah, that was that was the end of that operation. Mate, I, and how old are you at this point? I'm going to keep coming back to it. 23, 24, 25? 24, 20. I think I just turned 25, yeah. What a life. How old are you now? 34. I mean, 
I had to think about that for a second. Now, okay. <laughs> you look you great. Get... You look great for thirty-four. Oh, still, I mean, in fantastic shape. I mean, these are crazy. And you know, like we were actually going back and forth, weren't you? you? Said you had a few videos and stuff that you were happy to share, just to give like people a a kind of context to some of the stuff that you're experiencing. Let's have a look at some of these. Uh, what's this picture here? So that, yeah, kind of when we were, um, you know, on this tour. We'd sort of be going out, and on occasions we'd come across, you know, entrances to uh, like the insurgents' underground tunnel networks, and uh, you know, sometimes by chance, and or sometimes like the the drone or whatever up in the air would be following armed men around who would just seemingly just disappear off the face of the earth until we could get to the location, and we sort of found these entrances and. One of my skill sets within the squadron was demolitions. So when we came to these entrances, I was always on the team to well, essentially go in and, and destroy them, which was great. I, you know, I, I loved it. And, uh, you know, the first time I went down, I went down with a, with a buddy of mine who got the military cross on a previous tour for, for Valor. So, you know, you're in good company, right? But yeah, there were like a tunnel in the picture, you know, they were so tight sometimes, those, the, the tunnels. So kind of when you went in, it was a case of, you know, helmet off, body armor off, um, all your kit off. Uh, well, you kept your clothes on, but all other kit off. And, you know, I just used to go down with a, a rifle. I had a couple of magazines in my pocket and a flashlight on the rifle because, you know, it's so dark in there. It's just pitch black. There's no light. And the NVGs work off a, you know, you need a bit of ambient light to, to work off. And, yeah, there was none of that down there. So it'd be a case of, yeah, not not ideal from a tactical perspective because you know people went down those tunnels they see a light coming a mile off but there wasn't really much else for it um and so yeah used to used to go in and yeah essentially get to a point and start rigging up the charges to you know collapse and destroy them i think the most we kind of went down was only like 100 150 meters um but some of them, they were quite elaborate some of these tunnel networks you know you'd you'd go down and one of them was almost like it's almost like you're going down a you know, the London Underground, those like archway with the escalators. Just imagine a really shit version of that. Yeah. You know, it's just like a, you know, they've dug down and, you know, some stairs that go down and just these little tunnels at the bottom and you go in and there's all different intersections and stuff. So you definitely don't want to get lost. But um, yeah, so you'd, you'd go down and you'd, you know, rig the charges up. And because it was like in the training courses for the demolitions, it was always done in a very sterile environment. You know, you'd be in some field somewhere, you'd have all the space in the world to sort of lay the charges out safely. And down there, you'd be crawling over all your explosives, getting tangled up in the wires and stuff, trying to set it out as best you could. All the meanwhile, kind of looking, looking down one direction to make sure nothing was coming for you. And then, yeah, it'd just be a case of, you know, when you get to the point where the charges are set, and you're about to ignite the fuse, everyone else would leave. <laughs> and you'd um, be left. You'd be left to sort of, because you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna fuck up, you don't want the whole team getting buried down there, right? Like, uh, so, and yeah, you'd, and then you'd always prep the fuses before going out there. So I'd like a little tin of, you know, two minute fuse, three minute fuse, four minute fuse, five minute fuse. And you kind of just judge it when you're down there to which fuse, because you didn't want to leave too much time for someone to come and rip it out. But essentially, you, you still want to give, you know, enough time for you to get out of there. Mate, just talk us about this one here. I'm going to play it. So this is back uh, on the first Afghan tour with the Marines. So yeah, it kind of just looks like you're 
So where are you shooting there? Like, do you know the general direction? Yeah. Is it just putting fire in, right? So it's the tree line to the front. They're all there, and you can hear the... You see, you start to hear the change in the sound. So you can hear the sound of us firing. But now kind of starts to come in the rounds coming back at us. You start Man, to hear the difference. The noise. Well, that's why I came back so deaf. <laughs> And what does that noise, you know, when you hear that noise, does it treat like, you know? I think by this point, I was, you know. Pretty immune to, pretty, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, certainly, you definitely hear it. So, I mean, you can't, all you can see is like you're on a a dusty road anywhere in the world and it's just fucking. Yeah, and that was about, that was probably about 100 metres from our patrol base. And um, so that was in, that's in Afghanistan, there is it. Sand, so I, yeah, you don't realise how green, you know, when you see stuff. Oh yeah, as well. certainly. Yeah, by the you know anywhere near the water where the you know all the farming and stuff took place, and then because well, obviously uh, you're in your patrol bases, so when you go out and patrol, you're obviously walking into the enemy a lot of the time. But then a lot of the time, the enemy would contact you within your sort of patrol bases where you where you're living, which is what this video is here. Just a few snippets of that. So this is camera footage from, yeah, yeah, like your vest when you have them. So yeah, that was someone filming me, and then this is helmet cam from myself. Like I'm shitting myself just watching that unfold because that that like you in buildings there or is yeah, that, yeah. Is that... So essentially, our patrol bases were just old compounds that we sort of took over and fortified up, and that's where you kind of live. <sighs> We could go on. Like I, I need to have you back at some point, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about what you're doing now because, again, some else we were talking about around the transition out of the military and mate, listening to that, unbelievable. And people listen to this and the audience listen to this majority into rugby and we talk about, oh, you know, England ain't playing that well at the minute or, you know, will Scotland get through the group stages of the World Cup? Fucking unreal. Like, I mean, how are you now? Like, how is life after well, being in the military? Because when you talk about that, like, I'm taking, I'm taking it back. I'm like, it's like, wow. Like, how does someone now live in a normal world and park? If you do park, what's happened there now to look forward and branch out? So it's kind of a load of questions into one like how are you now and, and what are you up to now and how can like we support what you're doing yeah no all good you know there's certainly a time where you know i wasn't too great and you know in a real low point and thankfully eventually i confided in a friend who took me to uh eventually took me to an organization called rock to recovery who do some you know tremendous work you know supporting you know veterans with or you know serving because I was serving at the time when, when I saw them, but you know, helping them navigate through, you know, the the things that they've seen and done, and you know, certainly helped me out to the point where you know I don't know where I'd be if it hadn't been for them. Um, and they are called Rock to Recovery. Rock to Recovery. Yeah, yeah. So they're founded by a guy Jamie Sanderson, who himself was a, a Marine, and you know, struggled massively. Um, leaving so and that was his motivation to you know set this organization up to help individuals so hopefully they wouldn't have to go through as much of what he did um, but, you know fantastic organization 
and you know got me back into a you know a real good place to because you know when you're when you're kind of that low and having the kind of thoughts that you have you know you can't focus on anything else you can't focus on your job i certainly wouldn't be able to focus on family or business or anything else um but yeah thankfully saw them and you know i left in 2020 uh, for noise induced hearing loss was what i got medically discharged for but it kind of came at a good time as well because my first daughter was born new year's eve 2019 and yeah like if i'd if i'd stayed in she would have been born i would have been around for two weeks and then it would be a six-month afghan deployment you come back to a you know a kid that doesn't even recognize you and you know that just wasn't you know a sacrifice that i really wanted to really wanted to make at that point and you know in the meantime that for because about seven years ago now so me and a you know my best friend from school we just came up with this idea that you know we're gonna start a distillery and we're gonna build it on his family farm and uh yeah, we were going to do that. So there was a lot of the setup phase kind of whilst I was still serving, but it kind of got to a point where you had to kind of leave it behind to continue further. Um, so, you know, that was another big, big reason for, for, for me leaving um, to set up this, this new business. And like I said, left 2020, 2020, and it was meant to be like a hop, skip and a jump. And then the distillery would be up and running in 2020 as well. But obviously COVID came in and, you know, cause we built the distillery from scratch. We knocked down an old farm building like Luke, my, you know, business partner, cause he was a plumber before. So he basically project managed the whole build and, you know, dug down, got all the materials in, you know, even put the roof up most of it himself. Um, but cause of COVID obviously prices just went through the roof on materials, delays across the board. And then we designed our own bottle for the gin as well. And because I, I was on, I was doing the design for that and that just got delayed massively as well. So we didn't actually open until, you know, Jan, November, just gone, um, November 21st. So we've been open seven months now, um, and pushing that, but yeah, it's going really well. It's nice to, nice to be doing something completely different. Mm. And, you know, there's of course a lot of challenges and we both don't come from, like I said, he was a plumber before and I was in the military. So going into the drinks industry, it's, it's quite a change, but no, it's been, it's been, yeah, really enjoyable just to, you know, different, completely different challenges, but challenges all the Slightly same. different challenges. Yes. You could <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. say that to what you've been through. So East Chase, East Chase Distillers. And where is the distillery? Where is the, so it's in Kenilworth. Oh, it's in Kenilworth. Yeah, it's in Kenilworth. So yeah, like the town I live in. So it's, you know, a five minute drive for, from home, uh, yeah, it's ideal. And is there an association with the military or anything like that? Are you looking to do collaborations uh, with them? Yeah, potentially in the future. Well, they should, uh, but they should be jumping all over it. Hopefully, if they hear this, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, well, fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah, definitely. yeah. But yeah, no, we'd love to do you know time with the military and and do stuff like that. Uh, so we've got just the gin out at the moment, heritage gin. So we just bought out two more flavors. So we've got four flavors out at the moment. Going to have another two out for by Christmas time. We're working on a vodka at the moment as well. And the distillery itself, it's it's a distillery, but it's you know it's an event space as well. Like it's beautifully built, you know, like marble floors, mezzanine floor, bar. So for Friday nights, we're open. People come in for drinks and you know can have the gin where it's made essentially. Um, well, so, you should be doing some events as well. Like, have you? I mean, you've got a great, great voice for like this kind of thing as well. But the the path that you've walked, like, you should definitely be doing some oh, events yes. and speaking stuff. Is that the plan? Yeah. Well, so we've just started a thing called Gin Tonic and Tales, 
Um, so it's essentially, yeah, an evening talk of essentially my journey through through the military with the, you know, ending on setting up the distillery and where we're at with that. So, yeah, we're running that at the moment. That's going really well. We've had we've done three so far and got another one next week that's fully booked out. And then next one in September, building up on that and really utilizing it as an event space. Going to be getting the mini stills in so people can come in, create your own gin, bottle it up and take that home. Yeah, a lot of plans. That's what, I've nev- never heard of it. Not that I should. I live in Edinburgh now, but I'm in Kenilworth all the time. And not that oh, Jim Hamilton should know about a new distillery opening. But like, yeah, it, it's let's gather yeah. the momentum on this. It, it sounds class. Yeah, no words. <laughs> slowly but surely, getting out there. Um, you know, the gin market's incredibly saturated. Uh, so, but not, is, not, but not with a story like yours. It's, it's not. I don't think know. so. No. Um, yeah, not not that I'm aware well, of. Well, you see, I, I spoke to you about the American military initiatives that they've got, like Black Rifle Coffee, for example, yeah, the association yeah. with the military is really strong. And, you know, that's why I was asking about a military association with your company. Uh, yeah, definitely yeah. feels that something could be done in that space. Oh, definitely. Well, because I've got a clothing company as well. I set that up about five years ago whilst I was still serving uh, HMG clothing. And that's very much more like you know, military and veteran based. It's, you know, a lot of the content on social media that I'm putting out is is, you know, first hand accounts of life in World War One, life in the trenches and, you know, World War Two. But like remembrance through the eyes of people that actually fought. Because I think that's very much being forgotten of, you know, actually what, you know, guys had to go through. And certainly in World War One it was just absolutely horrific. Mm. You know, and it's kind of being forgotten to the point where it feels like people don't even understand the significance of the poppy, you know, and why it should be red and not any other colour. Exactly. But so yeah, running that as well. Yeah. But absolutely phenomenal. Like genuinely we'll do this again. Like we have to do it again. No, I don't to, think yeah. an hour and a half was long enough to, to go through that. It's one of it's my favourite podcasts that I've done in my whole series. Like I could listen to you talk, like the path that you've walked. Really? And what, my, my droney voice? Genuinely. Just, really? Genuinely. I'll tell you now, like the way that you <laughs> contextualised it, how real, how raw, how authentic. And now you're doing East Chase Distillers. Let's just throw it all out there. Like as in what on Instagram, like how will people like look into you if they want to hear more, the reach out if they want to hear you talk yeah, or yes. come and speak at a business? So... Yeah, so for East Chase Distillers, uh, contact through the website. We've got an inquiries line that's uh, monitored by someone else other than me, so someone will get back to you. <laughs> um, Instagram, Facebook under East Chase Distillers. Uh, yeah, the best ways of, of getting in touch. How did this all come about? Was it, it was the What's the guy's name from the coffee shop that we... That yeah. linked in with Alex. Yeah, Alex um, is his name as well. Oh, Alex. So they're both called Alex. There yeah, you go. So yeah. my Alex was contacted by, by your, your Alex, Alex from <laughs> yeah. Forrester Coffee. Yeah, because well, he's a friend from school as well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because well, he's been saying, oh, you should go on the Big Jim show. And he's like, it's a massive podcast. Uh, he's like, I'm going to get you on. I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then, yeah, eventually one day he's like, Rich. <laughs> so good, mate. Yeah. No, Rich, genuinely, Matt, I can't thank you enough for coming on no, and thank sharing you for the story. Me down. We're going to do it again. Let's have a six month kind of brief. We've got the World Cup. We'll build up East Chase Distillers and we'll do it again. I'd love to come down as well. Like, oh, as yeah. When no, I'm down for sure. Do. Yeah. Well, I am now. That'd be awesome. Rich, that was amazing. Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.